case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sig- virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Hi everyone, I'm Afrida. I am the Operations and Activism Officer for Hope Not Hate. Um, and today, uh, obviously, we have launching our uh, report called uh, State of Hate, a European Far Right in Europe, Far Right Extremism in Europe. <laughs> um, and it's a collaborative report between uh, Hope Not Hate in the UK, uh, Expo in Sweden, and Amadeo Antonio Foundation in Germany. Um, more about that later. Um, I just want to go through some um, some practical stuff. Um, so, as I said, this uh, webinar is being recorded. Uh, we will be able to showcase it later for those who have missed it. Uh, we have disabled our chat today. Usually, we have it, and people can say where they're from and say hi. But due to the amount of people who have signed up and the interest, we just wanted to keep it um, as secure as possible to uh, avoid any like trolls or any yeah. This was security reasons, but I can see a lot of people from all across Europe. Um, so great, uh, and we will have a Q and A at the end of the um, of this webinar. Um, each panelist will speak for approximately fifteen minutes, and then we'll leave forty five minutes for questions. Please feel free to put your questions in the Q and A box. Um, keep it uh, quite like try to keep it a bit short as well, so we can go through as many questions as possible. Uh, but yeah, um, that's for me. Um, I just wanted to introduce everyone, the panelists, first um, to my, I think it's to my yeah, bottom left. We have Simone Raphael, and she's joined uh, from uh, Germany. And um, she is a journalist and has worked for several, uh, uh, several media uh, Outlets in Germany before joining Amadeo Antonio Foundation in 2002 uh, to work for a democratic society and against far right extremism, racism, and anti Semitism. Um, she has also developed several web magazines and projects for Amadeo Antonio Foundation. And since 2019, she is also the editor in chief uh, of the online magazine. I'm going to put a ping to it now www.belltower.news. Um, and it's a network for digital c- civil society. Uh, so welcome. And then we all, we're all we also joined by my colleague, Dr. John Mulhall, who is the senior researcher at Hope Not Hate, which is the UK's largest anti-fascism organization. He's also a historian of post-war and contemporary fascism and has published extensively, both academically and journalistically, and um, have a few books that I'm not gonna read out now because I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> Um, but he's also the editor of the European State of Hate. Um, and finally, we'll join by Daniel Poole, who is a Swedish journalist, author, and internationally renowned expert of foreign extremism. He's the CEO of Expo Foundation and was the editor-in-chief of Expo Magazine from 2006 to 2019. So that's all of them. And uh, yeah. And I saw before we start, I just want to thank all of you who are joined us to join, uh, joining us today. Um, this webinar uh, can never be like, we can never do it without our supporters, our members. And yes, yeah, so I just want to give a big shout out to them as always. Um, you make our work uh, possible. And 
you make our, our work, like making these reports very, very much possible. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna start off with Joe. Um, can you tell us about the report, the extent of the report, the polling that's been done, and what is it that we will actually read uh, when we look at this big, big report? I think it's over 120 pages as well. Um, and just a quick question as well. How many countries have you covered? <laughs> so, so yeah, go on. Uh, and I'm gonna keep 15 minutes time. Yeah, no, yeah, do shout if I, if I talk for too long. Um, thanks, Frida. Thanks very much for joining us. It's wonderful to see so many people on the call. Um, this is a report we've been working on for a very long time, and we're, we're really excited that it's finally been published. Uh, and it's, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the report itself, what's in it, and we did some polling as well, specifically for this report. So I'm going to take you through some of the findings of that, um, which I think are really interesting and sadly a little bit depressing. So uh, I hope the evening doesn't prove to be too depressing for you all, but it's... Uh, uh, this report is on a particular topic and sometimes it's not too cheery. But the report itself, as Afrida mentioned, is a kind of collaboration between three organisations, one in the UK, us, uh, in Germany, Antonio and Expo in Sweden. And these are partners we've worked with really, really closely for, in some cases, decades, uh, but, but certainly for years in all cases. And we've been collaborating on monitoring the far right around Europe for, for some time now. And we felt it was time to bring together the expertise and to really kind of look at the state of far-right extremism across the continent and hopefully this is something we'll be doing more regularly. For those of you in the UK who are aware of our normal state of hate report, that will be coming out still. This is a kind of an additional one. This is Europe and we'll still be doing the UK one. I got lots of emails today about that saying, are we still having another one? But we will, so don't panic about that. Um, but ostensibly uh, the report itself is, is collaboration between the three organizations, but it actually brings together far more people than that. Uh, we've got a, well over 30, I think 35, 36 European experts, people that look at the far right, um, racism, xenophobia across the continent. So from every corner of Europe, we've had experts contribute to this. Uh, and it covers uh, a whole host of topics through essays, but also uh, a large number of countries. So, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the report, uh, it's on our website. Please do check it out. It's also on the Amadeo Antonio Foundation's one with a German introduction, if you're interested, and an expo as well. And the expo version, of course, has a Swedish introduction. So hopefully that will cover a, a lot of people with second languages. But we've got um, the report is ostensibly split into a number of sections. One is the polling. We've done a large poll across the whole of Europe or large chunks of Europe, which I'll go into in more detail. There's a real deep dive into the effect of COVID and the pandemic on the far right and how the far right have reacted to the pandemic. There's a series of really interesting essays, uh, one on far-right terrorism and the state of far-right terrorism, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about now. Um, a wonderful piece by Simone looking at conspiracy theories across Europe and QAnon, and a lot of this ties into all of the pandemic as well. Uh, there's an essay on the reaction to Black Lives Matter and some of the racial politics that's been going on, the far-right racial politics of the last year. Uh, and there's also some spotlights on Poland and the Western Balkans as well. And then the real kind of chunk or the meat of the report, if you will, is uh, the country by country section. And I think it's 33 or 34 countries across Europe. Um, experts in each country have written a profile, sometimes two, three pages, giving a really broad overview of the, the challenges that are facing those countries, who are the main elected parties, who are the main organizations, far right groups, individuals, social media players. And it's really just a reference. It's one of those things that, you know, I'd love you uh, people to sit down and read the whole report, but it's, it's a big one. But certainly it's one of those things that is worth keeping hold of and, and dipping in when, uh, something happens or you want to just a little pricey of what's happening in a certain country at a certain time. So I'd encourage you to kind of look at that. And, and the launch has been today and it's gone really, really brilliantly. I mean, we've had 
huge amounts of press coverage across the continent. The Times in London picked it up. Der Spiegel in Germany's picked it up. Aftenbladet in, in Sweden's picked it up. Publico in Portugal's picked it up. You know, most of the major newspapers of Europe have written something about this, which has been really exciting. We've had lots of radio interviews and television as well. So firstly, I guess the big thing I want to say is thank you to all the contributors. I'm sure some of them are on this call. Um, it wouldn't have happened without you. Thank you for your patience. Now, I'm going to touch uh, a little bit on why did we do this report? Uh, and I think we've wanted to do it for a while with the state of the international far right and the European far right. This just felt increasingly necessary, a survey across the whole continent uh, that people can look at. I mean, it won't come as a surprise for those people that have been watching closely, even over just, I say, the last three decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall, if you will. We've seen the rise of the European and radical right, not, of course, completely uniformly. It's been deeply uneven and in many cases slow. But we're now in a situation where the far right, uh, both the electoral far right and the non-electoral and the kind of street movements are in quite rude health in parts of Europe. And there's, there's a number of worrying trends we want to touch on. But the main reason we wanted to do this as a collaboration is, of course, that the, the far right now poses a genuinely international threat. Um, we'll talk, I'm sure, I'm sure Simone and, and Daniel will talk about their own countries, but also about the international threat. And the far right now, of course, we have the major parties that we talk about that are based in domestic politics, but we also have far right networks that go back and forth across the continent. And while these are nothing new, the far right has always been international. The Internet has allowed for uh, radical changes in the way the far right do business, if not the politics themselves, which, of course, in some ways is very similar. Uh, the way that people can network across borders is very important. And as a result, those of us who are in the anti-fascist movement and anti-racist and, and researchers looking at the far right, it's just central that we do the same, that we look across borders as well. So that was the, the big driving force behind why we wanted to do this report. Broadly speaking, so what are the key threats, you know, the threats that we'll pick out? I'm just going to give a very brief overview and then I'll hand over to my colleagues. But broadly speaking, the European far right is a combination in terms of threat of both the electoral far right, but also what we call the post-organizational, the transnational networks. The European far-right scene is a mixture of these formalized far-right political organizations and parties, the Sweden Democrats, Vox in Spain, Liga in Italy, the AFD in Germany. Um, I could go on. Uh, Orban in Hungary, um, law and justice in Poland. These, these traditional far-right parties, many of which are in parliamentary chambers across the continent. But it's also, there's a, another side to it, which is far-right movements, which are comprised of a disparate array of individuals and collectively. Um, and these people operate outside of organizations. And I think it's increasingly important that we understand these challenges as well. We kind of define the post-organizational far-right, essentially is not associated with traditional far-right political parties, but rather much looser, often international far-right movements that lack these formal structures. In an age of the internet, we've seen the emergence of numerous disparate movements. There was the anti-Muslim counter-jihad movement. We've talked about the alt-right and those sorts of things. And, and while all these groups have formal organizations within them, uh, they're often post-organizational in some sense. And by that, I mean thousands of individuals all over the world offering micro donations of time, uh, sometimes money, uh, and collectively collaborating towards a common political goals, often completely outside of traditional organizational structures. And these movements lack formal leaders but they have these figureheads, often what you might call far-right social media influencers. So it's a mixture of the traditional far-right with its political parties standing in elections and this more disparate scene, often online, often networking across borders. Uh, and this is often also where we see a large amount of the terrorist threat come from, which, which I'll touch on. But the report highlights a number of key themes that we think report. One, of course, is the continuing electoral threat of the European far-right. You'll see it in many of the country-by-country -country sections, the electoral far-right continues to cause problems. 
Um, they're in uh, electoral chambers in large chunks of Europe. In some places, they're parts of the government. And of course, this year is a very big year for elections. We have the Dutch general elections in March. We have Scottish and Welsh elections and English local polls in May. We have the French regional elections, possibly in June, depending on what happens. We've of course got the big German general elections in September. And then already people are understandably looking to the French elections next year with Le Pen polling strongly already. And the far right in power, we've already seen the problems it causes, both in terms of how the far right has dealt with things like COVID and, and when the far right is in government, how they've dealt with COVID, but also longer term effects in terms of how we will deal with things like the climate crisis. So the far right in power causes many, many obvious and dangerous problems. Another thing we highlight in the report is the terrorism threat. Um, I think in the last few years, it's less necessary to emphasize the far-right terrorism threat because it seems so obvious in a way that it perhaps didn't some years ago. But many of us who've been researching this for a long time have for, for so, quite some time been pushing for greater action on far-right terrorism and, and raising the alarm around it. Uh, and thankfully, I think more and more people are listening to it. Of course, amongst the worst hit countries is, of course, Germany in the last few years, where there's been a series of far-right terror attacks. Um, in October 2019, there was a far-right terrorist killed two uh, shooting in Halle. Um, there was also, of course, a further, I think, nine, ten people killed in February 2020 in Hanau. And this came off the back of many years of the uh, National Socialist underground attacks. But there's, of course, been uh, record numbers of terrorist arrests in the UK in recent years, not just the banning of national action, but subsequent networks of far-right terrorists, often international networks, um, with people based in the UK. And we've seen a, a shocking number of arrests and a large number of people going to prison increasingly. Uh, and this is because of the danger we're seeing from the far-right terrorist threat. And this is not just in the UK. If you look through the report by country by country, many of the country by country sections has a little note on the threat of far-right terrorism. And one of the things we think is really important when we talk about why we need an international report is looking at this far-right terrorism networks, how they work, how international often these networks are. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're completely domestic. But other times, increasingly, they engaged with each other on online platforms like Telegram across borders and around the world. And I always make reference to the terrible attack that happened in New Zealand a few years ago, back in March 2019, when a killer killed 51 people and injured 49 more. And the reason I mentioned that attack in a European report is because it's a really great case study of how the far right modern or the modern far right operates. The killer was obviously Australian. Um, the attack happened in New Zealand. But if you look through the documentation that the murderer uh, produced around it, he said he was inspired by the actions of the British terrorist Darren Osborne, of the Swedish school shooter Anton London, uh, the US church killer Dylan Roof, as well as, of course, Anders Brevik from Norway. His manifesto mentions far-right figures like Oswald Mosey from the UK, but slogans from the American far-right and white supremacist movement. Um, he also flagged historical reference points popular amongst European anti-Muslim movements. Uh, and of course, the links with the identitarian movement have been shown up time and time again in, in the recent months, uh, showing just how dangerous that network is. And before he did his attack, he spent time in France, he spent time in Croatia, he spent time in Bulgaria, Hungary, Turkey, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, all of which influenced his politics in one way or the other. And then of course, if you look at the people he killed, they were also from all over the world. We had uh, people from New Zealand, we had migrants and refugees from Pakistan, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, Turkey, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh. The Christchurch attack is, is the example of how the modern far right works in that it was a tragedy and it was perpetrated by one man, but it was motivated by a genuinely global movement. And that's why it's so important that reports like this exist that look beyond our street, beyond our community and beyond our country and actually 
the, across borders because that's the way these things are working. Uh, another thing, uh, wrapping up quickly, another thing is how in the report is we look extensively at uh, my colleague Safia Ruth Khan has written a really wonderful section on how the far right have dealt with the pandemic and how the pandemic has affected the far right. Uh, but also essentially the top line is, I won't go into great depth, is that the pandemic has provided real challenges for the far right and the far right has struggled to, to get itself in the agenda in some countries, but it has also provided new opportunities, especially uh, with this explosion of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory ideologies, uh, which I'm sure Simone might want to talk about. She, she wrote the article on that section, so I won't go into it. Finally, just on the, uh, the main themes we want to highlight is uh, racial nationalism on the rise in some ways. Of course, large chunks of the far right have always been racial nationalists. But last year, of course, we saw the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, uh, obviously starting in America, but we saw very large and welcome demonstrations in the UK but, and across Europe, many big ones in Germany and, and in Amsterdam. And, and we saw them all over Europe. And there was a real chance and a real moment of hope and an, an international discussion about prejudice and discrimination, uh, which is brilliant. But of course, the far right, there was a backlash, uh, which is no great surprise. Uh, and what we actually see, the report talks, and it uses some data we use from monitoring social media networks about how large chunks of the far right uh, were talking in much more explicitly racial terms, term in talking about things like whiteness uh, and, and, uh, and race politics, rather than for some time, many of, much of the far right had tried to talk in terms of culture and identity. And the mask really slipped. We've seen existing racial nationalist organizations uh, grow in some places, and we've seen in other places people that have spent years saying, I'm not racist, I'm not interested in race, I'm not interested in racial politics or whiteness. Uh, we saw that mask slip in some places, in the UK most notably with someone like Stephen Yaxley Lennon, aka Tommy Robinson, but also Britain First and the like, talking in much more explicitly racial terms about whiteness. So those are the key themes. And then finally, to finish, we did a really huge poll for this report. Uh, we surveyed 12,000 people across the continent. Uh, in eight major European countries, in Sweden, in France, in Germany, in the UK, Hungary, Poland, and Italy. And of course, it's not perfect. We would have loved to have done every country, but, but finances didn't allow. Uh, but it does give us a really, really uh, great snapshot of where Europe is on a whole range of issues, ranging from immigration to identity to, to general feelings about politics and feminism. And sadly, the polling numbers, I'm going to run through just some of the top lines briefly, uh, are quite worrying. Um, at least a quarter of Europeans have negative feelings toward Muslims. Almost a third have hostile views towards immigrants generally, and more than a third have negative views of Roma people, according to this poll. So let me just touch on uh, each of those or, or a few of the key things. One of the really worrying things that comes out of the poll is how angry or how disenfranchised are large chunks of Europeans are with their political systems. And we know, of course, that when there is real disquiet around political systems, this is a time often when the far right can jump on these issues. Political disenchantment is particularly pronounced in Italy and France, with 79% and 67% respectively feeling that the system is broken wholly or partially, and 63% in Poland, 58% in the UK, and 55% in Hungary. 74% of Italians, 63% of Poles, 59% of French people, 52% of British, and 50% of Swedes think their country is going in the wrong direction. Now, it's not for me to hear to say whether or not those countries are going in the right direction. But what I will say is when people are angry and when people feel that their countries are not working for them, and the political systems are not working for them, they look for alternatives. Uh, and the danger here is, is that some of these people may look to the far right. Attitudes to minorities were also especially troubling this poll. Um, they, they vary, but uh, uh, generally speaking, the minor attitudes are, are relatively poor across all of the eight countries. 
though uh, some are actually quite appalling. Two thirds of Italians, 67% said they had negative views of the Roma, while 60% of Hungarians have negative views on immigrants. The most positive uh, attitudes towards minorities are amongst the British, which was which was nice to see, but still a long way where there should be. 29% uh, have a positive attitude towards Muslims, which is of course depressingly low. We also polled around the Black Lives Matter question. Uh, while attitudes towards minorities are generally poor, more people did actually feel that Black Lives Matter protests highlighted racism and discrimination experienced by minorities communities, and that's welcome. But even though, even there, only in Germany, which was 52%, and in the UK, which was 51%, was the sentiment shared by a majority of people. Uh, in Hungary, the figure was just 23%. And then finally, again, I won't touch on it in great depth, but attitudes to conspiracy theories. There's been large, large levels of engagement with conspiracy theory ideologies in the last year, linked to COVID, linked to lockdowns, linked to vaccines. And of course, the far right have played a role in that. Um, attitudes to conspiracy theories more broadly, they, they vary extra, uh, really widely across country by country, but some of them I'll just highlight. There's a worrying minority who believe in a form of far-right ideas known as the Great Replacement. This is the idea that um, there's a conscious plan to uh, supplant white European people with people, the non-white people. 16% uh, in the UK to 45% in Hungary believe that elites are encouraging immigration as a plot to weaken the West. Um, this is obviously gets much higher in countries like Hungary where President Orban has been pushing this sort of rhetoric himself and has rallied against the EU interference and the dangers immigration opposed for a very long time. 45% uh, agree that elites are encouraging immigration there uh, to weaken Europe. Likewise, in Italy, where there has been political anger at the refusal of the EU to provide greater support on immigration issues, 39% of people agree with that. Um, there's also lots of interesting stuff about QAnon, but I'll leave you to that, uh, to that uh, in, in the report. And then finally, we also looked at attitudes towards anti-feminism. Um, misogyny is a central part of the contemporary far right internationally. It's both a route into the far right for many young people uh, and increasingly worryingly large numbers of people. But it's also um, we've seen the kind of bloody effects of this with numerous attacks in North America, especially where anti-feminist and anti-women people within the far right have, have attacked women. Uh, and we've seen in the UK various uh, groups linked to very extreme neo-Nazi terror groups and Satanist groups uh, pushing race, sexual violence as a weapon. The polls... Uh, did show uncovered a resistance to feminism in Europe. Uh, and in some ways it kind of confounds stereotypes. A huge 41% of Swedes think that feminism is responsible for the feelings of marginalization and demonization experienced by some men in society. But as I'm sure Daniel uh, will explain, if, if you'd like to, Daniel is from Poland. Uh, part of that may well be actually because of the, the great advances of the Swedish feminist movement have uh, made it more of a live issue and, and there's lots to be welcomed there. So I don't want to say it's all bad news by any means. But uh, in Poland, was 30% believed that feminism was to blame. In the UK, it was 28% and in France, 25%. Uh, the lowest all agreed with this statement was in 15% in Italy, uh, again, which in some ways bucks some stereotypes. So there's a brief overview of the polling within the report. I won't go on because I want to hand over to my colleagues, but broadly speaking, we, want to, we think the things we really want to get home from this report is that the far right is posing a threat in our electoral chambers across Europe and will continue to do so. That COVID has provided real challenges for the far right and there's some welcome signs that large levels of societal collaboration and, and sympathy have been really positive and lots of people turning away from the far right and people have failed to listen to the far right, which is great. But one of the things here is we know COVID is not over and we know that the long-term ramifications of COVID uh, could be very, very worrying, especially around things like economic downturns, which we know the far right will be ready to jump on. 
talk about closing borders, talk about economic crisis and scapegoating. So there's been challenges, but there are, of course, opportunities. And one of those opportunities is conspiracy theory ideologies and links with the conspiracy theory movement. There is a worrying backlash against things like Black Lives Matter and, and racial, explicitly racial far-right politics, which is deeply worrying. And there is, as we see from the polling abroad, um, uh, societal prejudice, which we need to deal with and we need to address, because this is, of course, the people that vote for the far right and that the far right prey on uh, and do that. And then finally, really ramming it home once more time, is the far right pose a genuine threat to European safety and security. The European far right um, have engaged in widespread terrorism, they have killed people and they will continue to kill people. Uh, and that is sometimes happening with very domestic cells, sometimes it's happening with individual or so-called lone wolves, although those lone wolves always come out of this swamp. Um, it's extremely rare that they just emerge out of thin air. They will always have some way been involved in these movements. And that's important to note. The far right pose a serious terrorist threat. So thanks very much for everyone who's contributed to the report. Thanks very much for those of you who have read it. If you haven't, please do. Um, it's online on all three of our websites, and it'd be great if you could check it out. Um, we'll be pushing it out over the next few weeks. And I'm sure you'll see lots of bits of press coming. And yeah, this hopefully will be the first of many of these. Uh, international collaboration is really, really important to us. So uh, thank you very much. And I'll hand back to you, Afrida. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Um, and on that international note, I want to ask you, Daniel, uh, why is it important for us to actually have this kind of international uh, report in a broader sense? And uh, what's the nature of the international, um, the international nature of the far right today, both in Europe, but also like in individual countries that we kind of looked at in this report? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, so nice to see so many attend this seminar, webinar, maybe we could call it. And so nice to see that there is people from all over Europe here. That's really the whole idea about this project that we're doing together. Uh, so uh, I wanted to highlight kind of the reason why we want to, to underline the fact that this is an international uh, international movement and in many ways an international threat that we have to deal with by cooperation and collaboration. The far right has always been an international movement. So even if many of these political parties and organizations many times label themselves as nationalist, it's, it's really not the nation in itself they kind of protect. The core nature of the far right is to, uh, is to guarantee the privileges and power to people they perceive as natives or in many cases white especially when it comes to the more extreme rights and the assessors of national socialism. So just to make a very, very long story short, I will just give some few examples of how the international nature of the far right has played out during uh, its 100 long, long year history. I will do it from a Swedish perspective just to give some kind of background to where we are. Uh, just one of many examples from, from the Second World War, from a Swedish perspective, uh, is, is the so-called Waffen-SS regiment. So after the invasion of Poland in 1939, Heinrich Himmler uh, sought to expand the Waffen-SS with foreign military volunteers for the Nazi crusade against Bolshevism, as they called it. We created this Waffen-SS regiment, Nordland, 
where Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish volunteers could could uh, volunteer. Somewhere around 180 soldiers were recruited from Sweden. We don't know exactly how many. Some of them died. Many died. Many of them came back home. Many of them kept this a secret for many years. Um, but the point here is they they thought they didn't went to war to fight for Sweden. And they didn't went to war to fight for Germany, but for the for the Aryan race, in what was perceived as a global war against communism, together with soldiers from all over Europe. And just to kind of take a long step forward in history, after the after the Second World War, again from a Swedish perspective, we had a man called Pad Engdahl, uh, by a by the way, a very close friend to IKEA's founder in Kamprad. So you can remember that next time you buy a sofa from IKEA. Anyways, he decided to try to rebuild the European fascist movement from its ruins. So in 1951, he started a network called the European Social Movement. The same year, delegates from 20 European countries attended a founding conference in Malmö. Amongst them, very well-known figures from the rest of the the rests of the fascist and national socialist movements, in, for example, France, UK, Belgium, Portugal, Italy. The goal of this movement was to form a kind of united fascist Europe, or uh, maybe you could describe it as a kind of European Union based on the principles of Benito Mussolini. Jumping a couple of decades forward in history, we end up in the 80s, where a group of young Swedish Nazi skinheads established contact with uh, Ian Stewart Donaldson. Uh, Ian Stewart Donaldson was the founder of the International Nazi Network Blood and Honor, who kind of combined political violence and white power music. And that strategy was imported to Sweden. And in a couple of years, Sweden became the center of production and distributing uh, uh, the kind of production and distributing center of white power music with customers all over the world, unified by global skinhead political subculture. In the early 90s, a new group was founded. They declared war against the Swedish state. And uh, I guess today we would just describe them and, and, and recognize them as, as the terror organization that they were. Two of the key figures in this network were arrested after bank robbery, uh, and they were inspired by the strategy outlined in the book Turner Diaries, written by the leader of the American organization National Alliance. The name of this Swedish terror network was in Sweden, or in English, White Aryan Resistance, which was actually the same name as a very violent American neo-Nazi organization. My point here is that during history, we've seen many examples of how the far right have found inspiration in other countries and cooperated with like-minded people. But that is not the news here, so to speak. But what we look at is the acceleration of this trend. Uh, and that's what is interesting. So international overlaps in a digital era means something completely different than we are used to. And it changes the way the far right operate, communicate, and mobilize. 
In a digital world, music doesn't need to be printed into a CD record in Sweden and shipped overseas to someone who only can listen to it on his CD player. Now you can find actually some of that music you like on Spotify. You can share it, you can explore it from wherever you are, whenever you want. And you know, don't need a conference in Sweden to start a network for a fascist Europe because the technique has already brought you the services and the logic of a network. You, in one sense, you already are in a network. Or another way to put it, that international connections used to take place despite traditional organizational structures of the far right. It was a way of going kind of beyond the traditional way of doing things. Today, the international connections take place because of the infrastructures of communication and collaboration that we actually all are a part of. And they take place because of the way the far right is organizing itself. Activists will, of course, generally be preoccupied with local or national issues, but they see themselves as part of a global community. Often activists from all over the world come together for short periods to collaborate on certain issues and these loose network act as uh, these loose networks sense this information all around the globe. And that's really one of the points here that it's crucial that we understand that the nature of the threat from the far right is truly changing. The international connections has always been there, but it's it's changing form. And I think it's important to understand it because it seems like politicians <laughs> don't really always understand it. So let me take an example of how ineffective it can be if we don't kind of grasp this new way of look at the far of looking at the far right. So in August 2019 the Norwegian Prime Minister met the press during a press conference in the aftermath of Philip Manthau's terror attack against a mosque in the outskirts of Oslo. In one of her comments, she said that she wanted to cooperate with the Swedish government to tackle the far-right terror threat. Because when the extreme right gathered to protest in Norway, many of the voices you hear are Swedish she explained, kind of implicating that Norway really don't have a problem on their own. This, this is a Swedish problem coming to Norway. So what was then the answer from the responsible minister in Sweden? Well, he told the Norwegian prime minister to take a look in the mirror. <laughs> Didn't Norway had one of the worst terror attacks ever a few years ago? Uh, and didn't the Norwegian government rule with support from the right-wing populist party where Anders Breivik once was a member? Well, honestly, I don't really know what happened with this kind of dialogue or of fight, uh, blame game between Swedish and Norwegian politicians. But I do know that the Swedish activists in the streets of Norway are members of the same organization as the Norwegian ones. They are, same, they are both members of the Nordic resistance movement, which is a pan-Nordic organization. It's not a Swedish organization. 
is not a Norwegian organization. It really doesn't matter exactly what language they speak because in political terms, they speak the same language. Uh, and it's clear that the work to stop them from spreading their hate, attack minorities and political opponents or undermine democracy is not a pan-Nordic uh, work. Uh, and this is just one example of how we tend to blame each other for the, for the problems with the far right. And I think therefore I'm extra glad that we have taken this first step to try to change the mindset of how we can tackle the threat from the far right. We've done it with support from you and in this partnership together with you, uh, Hope Not Hate and, and uh, Amadie Antonio uh, Stiftung. And I hope that we can continue. And I think that from my perspective, this is kind of only the start and it's not only a way of trying to, for ourselves, understand the far right, but also to, to be able to uh, change the mindset of, of politicians uh, and the authorities to, to really start to tackle this, this problem from, uh, in the right way. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Um... As a follow-up question that has come in actually um, on this specific topic, um, obviously we have done this report in Europe um, and we kind of have analysis within our own countries as well. Um, where would you see um, other threats? I mean, we, we know obviously US is one of the hot spots for um, uh, far-right extremism as well, but uh, uh, even across like the continent and uh, other places, where would you see where, where would you see threats coming in as well, if it's not Europe or US? Yeah, from, from, a more, from a global perspective, mm -hmm. I think Brazil is, of course, uh, a country we should look at. And we know that there, Brazil is not isolated in any way. Uh, the far right there is connected to the rest of the far right. And maybe the most worrying trend is India. The largest, biggest, I mean, the largest democracy in the world is, is actually run by... Uh, a part with its with its with fascist roots. Just as a, a note on that, I mean, the, the the ruling party in in India now was once upon a time inspired by Benito Mussolini. So I mean that that that's where you find the roots, and it's extraordinary that they are now in government in the biggest democracy in the world. So, uh, and we do know that there are some uh, our connections to India as well. So yeah, this is the first step. Maybe next time when there is a global report. And actually, I think it would be, I mean, there is a lot of work to do that, of course. But I think we have to look beyond Europe as well. And not, to, sometimes when we try to look outside Europe, we always look at the United States. But I don't think that's, that's always where we should look at. Uh, and there are other places as well. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Um, okay, so to our final speaker, uh, Simone, um, could you talk a little bit more about the rise of uh, QAnon and conspiracy theories and what these anti-lockdown movements are in Europe? Uh, who attends them? Why are they dangerous? And how have they managed to grow, actually? 
Yes, thank you, Frida. I will do that. I could talk, of course, from a German perspective about far-right uh, um, actors as well. We have a lot of them and a lot of these connections were, were mentioned already. But uh, I choose today to talk about the topic we worried about most uh, in the last year, in 2020, and this was the rise of conspiracy ideologies we saw in Germany and we saw it all over Europe as well. And this is one of these uh, points where we could very easily see that it's very good to connect uh, the democratic uh, actors as well, because we could see that there are a lot of motives who are shared uh, all over the continent and uh, some movements who started in, in uh, some countries. You know that Germany had a very big demonstration very fast. Uh, we are seeing this trend now in other countries as well. So I think it's important for all of them. And I thought I'd uh, talk about the strangest um, conspiracy ideology we see on this market at the moment. And this is uh, QAnon. And uh, I prepared some slides, so I hope you can see my, uh, my slides now. Yes, okay, perfect. And this is what I wanted to see. <laughs> so now I just have to find the start. Okay. So uh, I want to talk about why QAnon is a danger uh, for democracy in Europe. Um, so... Um, about the foundation I'm working for. You already heard about us. We are based in Berlin, working all over Germany, um, trying to reinforce a democratic civil society that promotes pluralism and human rights um, while opposing far-right extremism, racism, and anti-Semitism. If you want to know more, please visit our website as well. Uh, but now I want to come to QAnon. Um, as uh, you might know or you might not know, this uh, is a conspiracy ideology created in the U.S., And um, this uh, is the even start of the thing um, is something very typical for uh, internet subcultures because it started on an image board uh, called 4chan uh, as anonymous Q drops. So some, someone you don't know who he is or he, who she is uh, uh, claimed to be someone close uh, in the, uh, to Donald Trump in the U.S. government now these days and said he has uh, some hints um, which uh, are those Q-drops. And people started believing this. And um, this is because uh, it is a conspiracy ideology which takes uh, some old well-known motives and gives them a new drive. Um, the main narration is a narration of a deep state. So not the governments we voted for are governing us, but uh, some uh, secret uh, elites Uh, or people we don't know about. Uh, this is the uh, calling of the deep state. Uh, and this is a conspiracy ideology which explains all evil in the, in the world exists because of a giant conspiracy against the people or what people uh, who believe in conspiracies ideologies think the people could be. Um, from the first uh, start, QAnon has a very structural antisemitism within the conspiracy narrations. For example, this, uh, these um, pictures of puppeteers pulling the, pulling the strings, the hostile elites working against the people for a new world order, to something to reign the whole world. These are very old anti-Semitic narrations we know since the Middle Ages. And uh, these are the same narrations uh, the National Socialists were using and the Holocaust was based on. So we already know this, but it comes back in a new um, uh, new ways uh, from time to time again. And now it's here in QAnon. Um, also, the second um, main narration of the uh, conspiracy ideology is uh, structural anti-Semitic. Um, it's a narration of an elite that is also imagined as pedophiles. And you can name everyone you don't like uh, uh, in there, politicians, Hollywood actors, people working for human rights or something like that, media. 
And this uh, pedophile elite uh, keeps children trapped in basement and drinks their blood. Um, this is what the narration goes like nowadays. And uh, as you can easily see, it's a renewal of the blood libel uh, narration, uh, but in a new, uh, fresh way uh, with hashtags like Save Our Children, a lot of parents um, for example, uh, fell for this ideology because of this narration, because I think, yes, our children, we have to save them. Um, QAnon offers, uh, which is uh, uncommon for a conspiracy ideology, someone who should clear all this, who is a savior figure. This is Donald Trump. Uh, it's uh, very clear uh, that he is a, the central person of the narrative. Uh, but it also has some do-it-yourself moments. So always calling for people to think for themselves and add some more um, narrations to the uh, overall conspiracy ideology, so it helps, helps to keep a lot of different elements in it. On the other hand, if you're not creative like that, you can also rely on the other motif, which is called trust the plan. So if you don't understand what is happening in the world, there is a plan behind it and Donald Trump will be the savior. Uh, the picture you see on the right is a, a photograph of the demonstration in Berlin in August where, Q where Berlin QAnon supporters stood before of the U.S. Embassy asking for a peace treaty with this, with this flag. Now you could ask why is this a, a topic for Europe as it seems at, the, at first to be a very uh, U.S.-centered narration, um, but we could see an increase in conspiracy of uh, conspiracy believers in 2020 um, all over Europe, and we also could see a big rise in supporters for the QAnon movement. Uh, in fact, uh, UK has the largest support groups outside of uh, the USA, and Germany has the largest uh, support groups of non in the non-English-speaking countries, um, with approximately um, at least 160,000 supporters at the moment. As we see it in Telegram groups, if we take out the double, uh, double uh, entries in these groups. But there was a research uh, um, for uh, all over Europe on this topic in August uh, 2020, which showed that only very few countries in Germany, uh, in, in Europe, this were Estonia, Montenegro, and Albania, didn't have QAnon supporter groups all other countries had. And uh, this is because um, QAnon embraces local anti-democratic narrations. Uh, in Germany, for example, the far-right Reichsbürger movement identified very much with the ideology. Uh, in, Frank in France, uh, it were the Yellow West movements. In UK, uh, Brexit supporters, or in it Italy, anti-Rexes. Um, so it is a very diverse um, group of people clinging to these uh, narrations. What you can see in the graph, uh, it's from a pub publication we made on QAnon. It's the biggest uh, German QAnon group, um, and how. Um, their, uh, their members rose uh, within the pandemic. You can see it existed beforehand, but was of not much interest. <laughs> but uh, with uh, the start of the coronavirus uh, measures, they gained a lot of supporters. Um, so why is uh, this ideology so, uh, so um, why are so many people um, falling for that uh, very strange uh, conspiracy ideology? Of course, uh, in the um, situation of insecurity we all have uh, within the pandemic, uh, QAnon offers an explanation for all and for all evil things. It provides a clear savior, so you can hope uh, that times will get better. And of course, it is a community and giving you people you can uh, be together with uh, in times of social isolation. And as I said, it is open enough to integrate local conspiracy narratives um, and these conspiracy narratives corresponding with coronavirus um, as we know, with 5G uh, 
um, influencing us or something like that. All this is in integrated in this some kind of super conspiracy ideology. Um, we can see that there are some narrations that work in all countries uh, where QAnon supporters are active. And this is all kinds of discrediting of democratic governments or other prominent fighters for human rights or democratic values. Um, these are narrations of framing lockdowns and uh, antivirus measures as ways to install a, a dictatorship with an unknown end. So not seeing that you do this to protect people, but asking for the end of democracy, or at least people claim that this is the end of freedom of speech and freedom of actions, um, if you can't uh, decide if you want to wear a mask or not. Um, these, these are narrations we see all over Europe, and um, I hope it's easy to understand that since this conspiracy ideology attacks very much democratic values and democratic actors, uh, as well as democracy as a system in, in its whole, um, and it spreads massively anti-Semitic uh, narrations, uh, it is also attractive for far-right actors we heard about beforehand. So we could see in all countries also far-right actors or anti-democratic actors jumping in and trying to influence the people in this conspiracy world. Um, so perhaps uh, um, to end this, uh, the question, why is this dangerous? Because you could think, yes, people are moving away from reality. Why not? Um, this is not only uh, moving away from reality, but uh, they also move away from a world of science and proofs. Uh, so you can't, for example, argue with facts about against these uh, very closed uh, worldviews. Um, so it is uh, very difficult if you lose people you really like to this conspiracy ideologies. Um, people within these narrations develop an apocalyptic worldview because they always feel everything they care for is threatened um, by uh, the modern world or as the political actions taken or by the pandemic at the moment. And these people who are very worried all of the time can be easily manipulated and are approachable for further far-right ideo ideology as well. Um, then we have this uh, very concrete threat within these uh, narrations as government representatives and Jews in particular are named as the guilty ones for all evil. Um, and this is really um, um, a time where they become targets for violence. We had just the new numbers in Germany that, of course, that really there was an uh, increase um, of attacks in 2020 which uh, corresponds with this uh, rise of uh, very open anti-Semitic narrations. Um, then we see the uh, danger that people who uh, believed in the plan, so they trusted the plan until now, that they feel the urge to become the plan now or to be the plan. So people feel compulsion to act and they also feel a legitimation to do so because they no longer, longer believe in political solutions. They think the only thing which can help is a state of emergency or a state of civil war, and they're longing for it. And this was what we saw um, in a small uh, version of the storming of the Reichstag in Berlin in August. The people tried to enter the building, but weren't able to enter. And of course, uh, the storm on the Capitol in Washington, which were also a lot of uh, QAnon and other conspiracy, conspiracy ideology believers uh, uh, with the people um, storming the Capitol. And of course, it's also dangerous on a personal level, because if you, if you start uh, to live in a world of a conspiracy ideology, you will um, experience uh, alienation from family and friends and sometimes even lose your job if you work in, on a field um, where, where this is important. So it might be very difficult to come back. And uh, 
this is one thing I always like to say um, after the storm of the capital where um, some people started to think about if this can really be true or they believed in for years for some time, that this is a perfect moment to, uh, if you know someone who is uh, in this field, uh, to step to the persons and say that you would love them to come back to the world of uh, facts and science um, and uh, that nobody will laugh at them. Because uh, if you have... Uh, given a lot of um, 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 sacrifices for your ideology, it's difficult to return. But of course, we should like the people to return because if they stay in this delusional uh, realities where they are at the moment, it can be very dangerous because they are so easy to manipulate. Um, so at the moment, as I said, uh, Trump was the savior. Um, Trump is not American president anymore. At the moment, we are at a, at a point of time where some people are still hoping this is part of the plan and they are always postponing the dates when the plan will be fulfilled. This is a usual thing in conspiracy ideologies when they don't, uh, uh, when it doesn't happen what they said beforehand. But of course, there's still a danger that uh, if people realize that their plan is not working anymore, that they can turn to violence. And as we know that these scenes are connected closely to far-right extremists with weapons uh, in the US and also in Europe, this can be dangerous, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Simone. Um, I'm going to ask um, both Daniel and Joe to come back for our Q&A. But Simone, I actually want to ask you a question first. And that is, um, what do you think the chances are for um, uh, AFD uh, for, your for your upcoming election? What do you think the landscape would look like? And how do you think, like, um, uh, um, how do you think the election will work during this pandemic as well? This will be very interesting. I think this is the most interesting topic. Uh, I hope this is the most interesting topic uh, in Germany to, in 2021, because uh, if something else is more important, it might have something to do with terrorism. Uh, so uh, the AFD had uh, very good uh, votes uh, before the pandemic. Uh, we had some uh, of the eastern parts of Germany where they got in, uh, in uh, local parliament uh, elections uh, nearly 25% of the votes. So this was really worrying, of course. Uh, and then 2020 occurred and 2020 was no good year for the AFD at all. So first they couldn't uh, uh, take a stand um, to the coronavirus pandemic and the measures. Uh, so they first claimed that there are not enough measures. Then they realized that a lot of their voters are at the anti-lockdown demonstrations uh, and don't, uh, do not like to wear masks and say this uh, reduces my freedom of speech. And so they try to change and to say, oh, we thought about it. Um, we feel now that there are too many measures and the coronavirus does not exist. But of course, this is not really working because um, they are doing something they always claimed they would not do, that the other parties would, would change their mind every time and they wouldn't and they have done exactly this. But even more important um, is that the AFD struggles very much with, with itself at the moment. Um, a lot of the more um, right populist or um, ultra conservative uh, parts of the, uh, of the party have left because uh, there are so many radical um, actors uh, in uh, important positions at the moment um, and the party does not really uh, show big interest to get rid of them. So sometimes they try to get rid of them, but they never really do it. Um, so this will be very interesting because at the moment, if you see polls, uh, the numbers for the AFD are really low. Um, 
I don't know how this will work out uh, until September. We will see if they get back to um, a point of argumentations where they can reach the people. But normally that is a topic is racism. It's uh, uh, hatred against migrants and uh, immigration, for example. And this is just no topic at the moment in Germany where most uh, people feel in face of a, of a lethal pandemic, uh, it's not so important where you come from, but that you stay safe. Um, so I think the AFD will struggle. Um, at the moment, they are trying it with very, very old and uninteresting topics, like saying there should be no... Um, Uh, no media um, founded by the state and you should not pay any man money anymore for that. This is a very German thing because we have this, this kind of media after um, uh, uh, it was installed uh, to have free media after uh, the Third Reich. So this is something a lot of people believe in, but the AFD thinks this is not a good thing to do, but this is not a topic you can gain a lot of voters with. So uh, we will be very interested uh, in what they will be doing during uh, their election campaigns. They didn't start yet uh, um, within the pandemic. They can't hold their, um, uh, their, their starting points uh, and they're looking for places to do so. They will now start their campaign, I think, in March. We will have a look. Uh, thank you. And um, there's actually some questions that come in before. And you kind of asked the same question But to like maybe in Sweden and even in the UK, we're having a local election. What would you what do you think like the political climate would look like for uh, these groups? How will will they be able to mobilize um, or will it kind of not work out for them? I'm happy to jump in on, on the UK there. Yeah, we've got local elections in May. It's interesting in the UK, the electoral far right is is not doing very well and hasn't done since the collapse of the British National Party over the last 10 years. So generally speaking, coupled with, of course, our electoral system, which is first past the post, which makes it hard for, for people to win seats. But the British far right, in terms of the electoral, the British National Party is a shadow of its former self. It's, it's tiny, it's divided, it's, it's uh, barely going to do anything. The National Front continues to be a joke. Uh, not, not a very funny one, but a, but, but a joke nonetheless. Um, Britain first are attempting to talk about elections, but have struggled with the... Um, Electoral Commission, and the, I'm sure they'll stand some people uh, locally under their own banner. Patriotic Alternative, which is a, a newish racial nationalist party, um, will likely try and stand, although they're having uh, similar problems with the Electoral Commission or if they stand somewhere. But none of them have a chance. None of them are um, a shadow of the British National Party, what it used to be, in terms of its ability to mobilise large numbers of people and large numbers of votes. Um, many of them have a, an eye on it and trying to unite that electoral element of the far right, but have continued to fail. Even Patriotic Alternative has continuously failed to unite large chunks of the British far right. And the large chunks of the British far right is, is seen as a joke. So the electoral far right is, is not going to be a major threat in these elections. We'll have lots of independents. For Britain is another one, an anti-Muslim party that has a couple of councillors. But none of them are likely to make any sort of waves in this election. But I think part of that is, is because of the nature of British discourse around immigration, migrants, etc. And one of the questions is whether or not they're particularly needed at the moment. I mean, if one looks at some of the rhetoric coming from our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, around the issue of cross-channel migration, for example, um, it's pretty indistinguishable from stuff you would have traditionally heard from the far right. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of 1979 in the UK, when the National Front was this huge force They stood 303 candidates, which was a record. And, and Margaret Thatcher came out and gave this speech about British, you were being swamped by people of an alien culture. And the National Front obviously collapsed electorally. 
because people didn't need to vote for the National Front with all the stigma that came from that if they felt those concerns were being dealt with by mainstream parties. And we're in something of a similar situation now. I mean, if you look at the rhetoric uh, amongst lots, large chunks of the mainstream press and, and mainstream politics, uh, attitudes towards immigration, migration, migrants, Muslims especially, um, isn't that different to what you'd hear from the far right? And so there's not a huge amount of space for an electoral far right in many, in many ways. Couple that with the fact that much of the electoral far right is, is a joke and they've been infighting and they've failed to get their act together and most of them haven't even managed to get registered as political parties. It's meaning that, generally speaking, it's not going to be an electoral threat. But, but in the UK, it's long been the case that the lack of an electoral far-right party doesn't necessarily mean uh, the, the non-existence of electoral far-right politics. Um, the rhetoric and ideology is often found in other candidates and other places. So we need to be really aware of that, even though that it's, it's in some ways really positive that the, the electoral far-right is so small here. Uh, the next election in Sweden, where we have both uh, local, regional and national elections at the same time is in uh, is next year. And uh, I think there are kind of two political dramas at the same time here. So the first one is, of course, the Sweden Democrats, which have established themselves as a part of political mainstream. But the other political parties has for quite long now really kept distance from the party. So during the, the, the Sweden Democrats have struggled during the pandemic, like many other uh, like-minded parties uh, around Europe. Uh, they gain most of, they, they win support when topics like crime and uh, immigration is on the agenda and that hasn't really been the case. Uh, so they're the kind of losing support but on the other hand, they are on a quite stable level. So they have really kind of established themselves around 15% at least. That's what we can count on in the next coming election. The big question is, will, they, will, they, will there be anyone who wants to cooperate with them? So the leader of the Sweden Democrats presented this idea of a conservative bloc uh, and I will not go into details about Swedish politics here, but in the end, the big question is, will the two other, the two parties that kind of are closest to the Sweden Democrats on the la political landscape, will they, do they dare to start kind of an open cooperation uh, with the Sweden Democrats? They have, they have already, uh, made some symbolic gestures and we see signs almost every day now that the wall is, is being teared down. Uh, so I think in the election that will at least, I think we will come to the situation where there will be some kind of conservative block presenting itself in the coming election. Uh, or at least the voters will have that as an alternative, even if the politicians don't say it out loud. Uh, and they are, if you look at the opinion polls, very close to the majority. If they don't win majority, we don't know how it ends, uh, how the how government can be created at all. But so that's really the big drama. And since the Sweden Democrats are so big and strong and well established, all the attempts from the rest of the far right to come up with a kind of competing alternative 
uh, is always uh, always end up in in a, in a total failure. And I guess that will do that will be the case in the next election as well. We will see uh, a party called Alternative for Swedes try to to win win some local seats. Might, they might do that, but they will not really affect kind of the the big structure of the far right, where the Sweden Democrats are this kind of broad nationalistic party, flanked by various of more extreme groups. Oh, there we go. Thanks, everyone. So um, thank you, for everyone, for sending in questions. We're going to try to answer as many as possible. Uh, some of these questions are quite similar. So if your question is not being answered, it probably is. <laughs> Um, so there's a question that came in before and someone asked as well, we, we're seeing a lot of like, <clears throat> like far right or neo-Nazi demonstration, like in the UK, we've seen people, patriotic alternative, like physically um, coming in. And in Spain, there was also one with 300 people. And these are being spread around social media. People are, um, a lot of people are denouncing what's happening as well. But how do we kind of generate this public um, revulsion, I guess, towards this idea without maximizing their message? How do we kind of stop it, basically, from spreading? Yeah, Simon? Okay, then I, I just go ahead. Um, I think uh, this might not surprise you as I'm a journalist, but I think it's always good to explain to people why something is a problem. Um, we see this that uh, a lot of media, if, for example, uh, some new movements are coming up or some uh, new ideas, not everyone can um, really uh, really easily detect as, for example, an uh, anti-Semitic or an Islamophobic argumentation. Uh, media turn to just calling it like that, but not explaining it. And then a lot of people um, ask themselves or ask the media uh, if they can um, what should be, uh, should, should be so problematic about this? Why is this racist? Why is this anti-Semitic? Why are you saying something like that? And I always like uh, the idea that media could just explain it uh, at the first sight. Um, so, of course, you have always a problem that if you talk about topics, you have to, um, have to talk about them again. But I think it's more important to really highlight when this is a problem for the democratic societies if these demonstrations are happening. Um, it's no use if you just uh, don't write about it and say, then I don't amplify it. Um, I think it's tested a thousand times all over the world. Uh, at least in Germany, this was a very, very common uh, strategy in the 1990s, for example, to say, oh, if there's a neo-Nazi uh, demonstration in town, just nobody should look there and then they will uh, be very sad and go home and never come back. And it's, uh, it was just a different way around because they felt encouraged and felt like, wow, there's no, uh, no one um, talking or arguing against us. Everyone is accept, uh, accepting us. And so we come again and uh, visit this town every weekend. Uh, this happened in Bavaria uh, in real time. Um, so I don't think it's a possibility to be silent. It's just a possibility to explain what is happening. Just, just to jump in there. I mean, I completely agree with Simone. I think, I think she's absolutely right on that. And I think one of the big dangers we face is, exactly, is, is bad reporting. It's not the fact that it, sh it shouldn't be reported. It's that it needs to be reported properly. And, and there's forever and a danger, which is uh, journalists, especially putting something as a, it's a, that's a good story. So we'll run it rather than actually saying, well, what's the point of running this or how should we run it? There's endless stories in the British media, you know, Nazi hipster buys new socks. 
And it's completely pointless. It has no effect other than the fact it gives that person a picture in a newspaper. Um, these people do pose real threats, right? And as Simone says, it's about explaining what that threat is. And, and too often, uh, with endless frustration, for those of us that have spent many years campaigning uh, and lobbying social media companies to act responsibly and remove really dangerous people from their platforms, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen it on Twitter a million times. How many uh, journalists will sit in these weird corners of the internet, screen capping terrible things and putting them back on Twitter and saying, look how outrageous this is. Why have we spent years getting these people removed if, if mainstream journalists with huge followings are going to put that stuff back on social media? It's about framing it and saying, this is why this is dangerous. And I think it's also about looking at the audience. You know, Hope Not Hate will often write an article saying there's a new organisation or a new party which is problematic and dangerous. And that's because part of our remit is about educating our own movement, educating the anti-fascist movement, working with the anti-fascist movement, educating politicians, journalists, etc. And that's mainly our audience, whereas the Sun newspaper or the Daily Mail newspaper's audience is not necessarily that. And so the question is whether or not they need to write the same article saying, here's this tiny far-right group. Ours might be read by a relatively small number of interested people that we're hoping to inform. Theirs might be read by a whole load of people that have never heard of them and don't have any context. So I think it's just not about saying I completely agree. It's not about just saying ignore them. I think time has proved that's not a helpful way. Uh, and sometimes it is useful to make people angry and outraged. You know, I, I know that some people find things difficult to look at and, and triggering, etc. But sometimes we need people to be angry because people should be angry and outraged at these things because they're terrible. Um, but it's about making sure that it's in a context that people understand when they view it, why it's dangerous. And hopefully in some ways, what we might be able to do about it rather than just saying, oh, this is a really horrible graphic image. Let's put it in the newspaper because we know people will click on it uh, and with a, with a sexy headline. And too much of the media is uh, doing that way too often. So I think it's about how you do it, not necessarily whether or not you should do it. Thank you. Um, a quick yes or no question. Um, does the report go deeper into the reasons uh, respondents say that they have negative opinion, negative opinions of certain groups? Sorry, I can, I can jump in. I think Daniel wanted to come in on the last one. So I'll, oh, sorry, I'll, Daniel. <laughs> I'll, jump, I'll jump back to him in a second. Let me just do this. But um, in short, uh, yes, I mean, it's why, why is always the complex question. There is no simple monocausal explanation for negative societal attitudes. There's a whole host of them. I mean, I've just mentioned the media. I mean, we have to put contemporary societal uh, attitudes towards migrants and immigrants and Muslims in the context of decades of negative press attention towards migrants, uh, communities and Muslims. We also have to look at the role of the far right itself. You know, I mean, even though these far right movements, they ebb and they flow and they grow and they shrink, they still reach millions of people uh, with their propaganda and with their ideology. And over long periods of time, some people will believe it. And so it's the far right, there's also the mainstream. And then also I think one of the major reasons that things are so bad is because of the increasing normalization and mainstreaming of anti-Muslim rhetoric. I remember a few years ago, um, part of my job used to be going on far-right demonstrations for Hope Not Hate. And I remember being in Prague and there was Tommy Robinson from the UK, uh, like the anti-Muslim activist. There was people from Pegida in Dresden that were there. There was a whole array of the European far-right was stood in Prague in the town centre. And, you know, various people came up and did their usual talk about Muslims invading Europe and all this sort of stuff. And then this man stands up on stage in a long coat and the crowd goes mad. And it's Milos Zeman, the president of the Czech Republic. And he stands there and he says, Muslims are invading us. We need to do something about it. Um, part of the reason that lots of people have anti-Muslim views is because they're not confined to the far right anymore. No longer do you have to hear, to hear far right views, you no longer have to join the British National Party and hear it in some workingman's club or in, a, in an old pub somewhere and you hear this rhetoric. You can see it on social media every day. 
because the tech companies have failed to deal with that. And now you can hear it from presidents of the European Union. Uh, and when it becomes normal and it becomes uh, less, essentially it breaks through the cordon sanitaire, when it becomes normal and the social costs for, uh, for articulating these views has become so low, more people will believe it. And so it's a, a part of it is about exposure to those ideas. And also, as I say, decades of the media um, pumping out these sorts of lines. Thanks, Daniela. I think you wanted to um, reply to the first question as well. I'll try to do it very shortly because there is a lot of questions and not that much time. But I think I, I agree with Simone and Joe. Just to add a, 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 a perspective as well on, on kind of how to deal with far-right demonstrations from a kind of anti-fascist activist point of view. I think we have to remember that nowadays a demonstration is kind of part one of the of, of of the activity in itself. So part two is how it is depicted on social media. So you really, you kind of, sometimes it seems like they are actually organizing a demonstration just to have content uh, on social media. And therefore, I think when you're dealing with how to kind of, how to counter this kind of uh, demonstrations, one thought might be how to deal with uh, the material online as well, because that's a very part, important part of the story around the demonstration as well. And that means, of course, that you can, I mean, you can file complaints to social media companies hoping for them to react, which they usually don't. But you can also kind of take that, take control of the narrative yourself by well, making fun of them or whatever. So just remember that a demonstration today is kind of chapter one in the, in the long book. <laughs> And I think that's important to remember. Thank you. Um, so there's some questions about how like far rights are funded. Um, and this question says, there seems to be a clear connection between transnational crime and the far right in the US funded by some wealth, wealthy individuals. Do you see the same connections here in Europe? And is it effectively part of an international network tied to this criminal network? I can jump in here. I'd be, I'm sure the others might have something to say. It's a really difficult question. And while there are, of course, sometimes large backers with loads of money doing terrible things, um, I think sometimes that skews the discussion about how the far right generally operates and is funded. There are, of course, examples like during the Brexit campaign. I'm not saying that's a far right thing at all, but, but elements of the Brexit campaign certainly were you know, funding from large figures like Aaron Banks, etc. You know, so people with lots of money funding things like UKIP. That does happen and that is a thing and of course there is uh, we know many decades going back extreme far-right groups engaging in organized crime whether or not that was things like combat 18 you know people in, engaging in very extreme sorts of things or robbing banks we've seen obviously with the national socialist underground and so there, there is those kind of links to organized crime but actually i think this in some ways goes back to the the post-organizational thing i mentioned at the beginning which is a large way in which the far right is funded now is through these large networks of individuals donating relatively small amounts of money. Um, I always think back to the Defend Europe mission in 2017, which was the identitarians when they got their boats into the Mediterranean to, to kind of disrupt refugee re rescue missions. And if you look at how that was funded, there was huge amounts of hundreds of thousands of pounds went into that campaign. And it was raised mainly through relatively small donations from across the continent of individuals all over the world giving money to that. You know, there was, of course, money coming over from the North American far right, but also Australia, South Africa, across the continent of Europe. Lots of people donating small amounts of money. And in some ways, the far right, like all social movements now, not just the far right, crowdsources its money. 
Uh, and so, yes, there are people that are big donors to the individual specific political parties that continues as it always has. But there's also this other layer, which is people raising small amounts of money to go to demonstrations or to hold demonstrations and then traditional things like book sales. Uh, selling books. We have Arctos uh, Media, which, which makes money selling books. We have record labels selling Nazi hate music, all of which, or none of which in that case make the money they used to. But I think this is it. There's a combination. And I think if we spend too long looking for like a secret Russian person or a, an underground figure, we've all been looking at it for a long time. And I'm not saying they're not there. I don't want to give the impression that there isn't very wealthy people doing terrible things. I'm sure there is. But Actually, I think the main problem is less the fact that there is some secret shadowy far right funder. Uh, and it's actually much more that this is a movement that funds itself uh, through selling merchandise, through selling CDs, through small donations, through drives on things like GoFundMe and the like. Uh, and, and this is why the internationalization is so important, because they're not just raising that money from their own town or from their own community from a book sale. They can be raising it for their cause from anywhere in the world. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, uh, um, I agree with what Joe said, and I think that I think United States is partly different from European political culture. So in the United States, you have this kind of oligarchs that funds all uh, politicians like Donald Trump and so on. So there is kind of this setup is different. Just to add to what Joe said, I think in a couple of years when we sit here again and try to kind of make an overview of the far right. A, a new problem that we are facing is that this micro donations will be even more hard to to track and to to uh, to crack down on because of at least from in Sweden it's quite clear that they're moving very fast into cryptocurrencies and bitcoins and other uh, uh, so-called altcoins, alt economy uh, structures. So I think uh, in a couple of years we will see that because that really goes into the, the way they organize themselves as well, uh, which is a big, big challenge because it will really be hard for us to, today at least you can, you can complain to, let's say, PayPal or MasterCard or whatever, which is big companies that have some kind of social responsibility in the end. Uh, the world of cryptocurrencies doesn't work like that. Uh, and Bitcoin will never stop uh, far-right organizations from, from using their structure of, for funding, uh, is my guess. So that will be uh, a challenge. Happening. Thank you. Um, to add perhaps one more, one more point? Might I add one more point? I'll make it short. But I yeah. think it's also important to mention that uh, also uh, far-right actors are earning uh, uh, money on social media, of course. Um, we can, if you, if you look and into these scenes uh, in the online world, they're not always asking only for the money, but they also get money because they have a lot of views, for example, on video channels uh, where they get uh, monetization uh, if they are not listed at far, as far-right organizations. And this is really, um, if uh, some people, what happens sometimes in the German far-right scene, if some of these uh, people are deplatformed, uh, then they claim afterwards how many money they have lost and how uh, uh, how this uh, will uh, not uh, make them possible to do no comp uh, new campaigns or something like that. And people should give more money to them. So this is really also a topic where, for example, the social media companies really could react. 
Thank you, Simon. Um, Simon, actually, a question to you uh, next. Um, and please keep it quick, because I know we have like 10 minutes left and there's loads of questions we want to go through. Um, so someone here said that um, they read an article about preliminary study that uh, correlated high rates of COVID-19 cases in regions with stronger support of the of the. Uh, has this finally been confirmed? Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it's not so easy to confirm this. It was just a very small case study uh, of my colleagues, actually, of the Institute for Dem Democracy and Civil Society in Jena. But it is a very interesting one because they had a close look um, of uh, the areas, uh, as especially in eastern Germany, where you have loads of COVID-19 cases and uh, the supportership for the AFD. And uh, this correlates very strong. Um, of course, as you uh, might know, um, uh, it's not easy to say one thing is the, um, the origin for the other one. But of course, a lot in regions where there are a lot of AFD supporters, you have uh, people being anti-democratic and uh, being very critical of, uh, of government measures uh, overall. And so you also see that they have a lot of supporters for these anti-lockdown demonstrations. And these people then, of course, don't behave very, uh, um, very uh, healthy, for example, and not clinging to any of these measures. And yes, you can see this correlation. Thank you. Um, so another question. Um, do you think that some of the misinformation spread to the BAME communities, for those who don't know what BAME is in Europe, is um, um, like ethnic minority groups um, of anti-vaccine could have been spread by the far-right fascists? So do you think that some of the misinformation spread to the BMAE community of anti-vaccine could have been spread by the far-right fascists? Um, not in just in the UK, but around Europe as well. I can, I can jump in br briefly on that. It's, it's, of course, an extremely difficult question. We at Hope Not Hate have got some polling coming out looking at attitudes uh, to uh, vaccine hesitancy within the BAME community, uh, BAME community sorry, across the UK. Uh, and it's very difficult. The polling will be coming out soon. I wish my colleague Rosie was on the call as she's been working on it. And so she'd be perfect to answer this. The short answer is please look out for that. And we, we try to look at in detail why some of that is. And it's a very broad array of reasons uh, for slightly higher levels of vaccine hesitancy in certain ethnic minority communities. But um, I haven't seen a huge amount of explicit far right attempts to push uh, fake news towards baby communities. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I, I haven't seen a huge amount of it. What I have seen, of course, is uh, far-right groups and individuals seeking to exploit this uh, and, and attempting, like they have in all different facets of the pandemic, attempted to frame it as the fault of non-white people or other, as migrants, either migrants that are arriving or, you know, saying that, the, you know, non-white people are not going to take the vaccine, they're dangerous. It does, of course, create a bit of a paradox within the far-right in that large chunks of the far-right are anti-lockdown or vaccine sceptics. And so it's hard for them to capitalize on that by saying, well, these people won't take a vaccine uh, when big chunks of their own movement are doing the same. But I think it's fair to say, while, while I can't prove anything that the far right's attempting, I certainly wouldn't put it past them. And what I do think is fair to say, uh, and we can prove, is that they are already trying to take advantage of, of this issue, it turns around vaccination within non-white communities, and they will continue to do so. But I don't have a really firm, I would say, look out for my colleague Rosie's report because uh, that should be coming out relatively soon. And there's really loads of interesting data in there. 
Thank you. Um, and another question. Um, should we ban far-right groups to stop the rising levels of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? And then how do we go on and do that? Um, as individuals, as politicians, like it's, it's a big question uh, that we all working on, but how do we actually do it? Simon? I don't think it's such a big question. It's, it's an easy question because, uh, of course, you can ban groups, but you don't ban the ideology. Um, of course, it might help for, for some very practical uh, reasons if you ban groups. Um, for example, it take, makes it easier to take, get them off social media or things like that. But uh, you can see that uh, the ideology is always still there and also the members of the group are just reorganizing themselves. And as we said that we have a post-organizational uh, far right at the moment in, in Europe. Um, one of the things which uh, comes out of this is that if you have a far right terrorist, for example, and this is, he is detected beforehand, you only have a very small of people, a group of people affected. So um, you can't really ban this. So we have to work on this on a political level and on a societal level um, to work for dem democratic values uh, because it will not help just to ban it. Just to follow on that. Yeah, it's, it's of course a deeply flawed tactic, but... Um... I certainly don't think that we should broaden it out to the point where we're banning whole swathes of the far right. I don't think it's necessarily effective and I don't think it's useful or in some cases, I don't think it's necessarily democratic. Um, there are cases when I think it's necessary. We've banned, National Action was banned in the UK a few years ago, which was the first uh, far right organisation to be banned in the UK since 1939. And it was a big step. And it, it did in many ways cause huge problems for the movement. What I would say is, is that it's not the end of the story. Uh, too often uh, an organization is banned and everyone just presumes that's the end of it and they've all gone home and they've put the swastikas back under the bed and they've gone to work and that's not of course how these things work as we've seen in the UK we've seen increasing regular incarnations of those same people under different uh, names and different organizations and so these things continue it's not a silver bullet but in some ways there are a large number of people in prison right now for membership of national action and by banning an organization membership becomes criminal which means that there is an ability to disrupt them um, by arresting them uh, for breaking the law. And so that, that makes sense in some cases, but because that's so extreme, arresting people for being the members of an organization, um, it demands that it's only done in the most extreme cases. This is not just getting rid of, you know, I'm not saying the BNP or, you know, these sorts of groups are democratic organizations, although they don't believe in democracy, I hasten to add. But um, on these kind of most extreme violent terrorist acts, I think the line comes when they pose a genuinely uh, organized physical threat to society in terms of terrorism. And at that point, it then becomes, of course, not a, a criminal matter. It becomes an issue for the state, uh, as well as an issue for the anti-fascist movement, of course. And so, um, yeah, I think it's not a perfect tactic, as Simone said, these people uh, continue to exist. And as she says, you know, many of the channels we monitor are just Telegram channels now that are sending around terrorist content all over the world. Lots of people don't know what country these people are in, let alone who they are. So when it comes to banning them, the practicalities of it become difficult as well. But I'm not saying it should never happen. We're running a big campaign in the UK to ban the Order of Nine Angles, the Nazi Satanist organization. And that's because it, it poses a genuinely terroristic threat. We've seen a number of arrests for terrorism already uh, linked to that organization and they engage and, and they call for engagement in extreme violence. And in that case, it makes sense for them to be banned. But yeah, it's, it's not a simple answer. Thank you. I'm going to go to the last question, actually, and um, it's kind of trying to end it on a positive note. Uh, and there's a question saying, Ireland has been spoken of as the only European country without a far right political party. Uh, is there anything we can learn from there? Or is there 
actually anything we can learn from countries or societies or any place where we we where they have successfully fought the far right or these kind of hateful narratives so i want everyone to kind of reply to that and kind of try to end in a positive note and maybe give also give your um, best advice for individual activists politicians anyone to how we in our daily life can kind of fight these hateful far-right narratives as well thank you why don't I quite jump in quickly with the non-positive bit and I'll leave it to Simone and Daniel to talk about the broader examples of good stuff. I mean, on specifically sure. on Ireland, um, I would recommend really reading uh, Sean McDade's uh, contribution to this report, University of Huddersfield. He's got really interesting three or four pages on Ireland. And I would love to say something really positive. I mean, in the report, he talks about the National Party, talks about the Irish Freedom Party, talks about the Irish Patriots, the anti-corruption Ireland and Identity Ireland. So there was, of course far-right activism in uh, in Ireland. And what I would say is, is about this question of exceptions, right? Actually, it's interesting that the, the we've got one person from Germany, one from Sweden, and we're in the UK, in that all of these countries at one point or the other have essentially been called by some people as exceptions to this rule of the rising far-right. And obviously Ireland is there. And, you know, Germany was the exception because Germany had this history of confronting its Nazi past, so the far-right would never rise again. And, and we see the AFD in parliamentary chambers. Sweden was this liberal bastion. It was all going to be fine. You know, I mean, people in Sweden weren't saying this necessarily, but but around lots of Europe were saying the far right will never get a foothold in Sweden. They're too liberal. They're all just nice people. Um, and of course, we have the Sweden Democrats. The UK was like, we'll never have an electoral. We'll never have a far right problem in the UK. We fought the Nazis. We're an exception. We've got the first past the post system. We end up with two European MEPs from the British National Party, 60 odd councillors and a member of the London Assembly. Um, there, there goes that one. And of course, we've had uh, bigger problems with things like UKIP, etc. So, so that one. Portugal is another one. Portugal, where we're going to have no problem. And, and there's a really interesting section in this report, again, by colleagues in Portugal talking about the rise of Chega. So Portugal is never going to be a problem because this democracy flourished after dictatorship. It's not going to happen. And we've got it there. And so I always get wary. I'm not saying that there are no countries uh, where there won't be exceptions. But I do think, generally speaking, no countries are completely immune to the, the threat of the far right, both electorally or non-electorally. And so it's always worth being vigilant. I think time and time again, we've found comfort in finding exceptions and time and time again, we've been proved wrong. So I know that wasn't the, quite the chipper ending you were hoping for, but um, on, on, on the upside, maybe if I just give one brief thing, I think that um, if we look at the collapse of the electoral far right in the UK, if we want something happy to go off, the collapse of the electoral far right in the UK happened with uh, millions of anti-fascists around the UK mobilizing over decades to fight the British National Party. Uh, both at Hope Not Hate, but also all sorts of anti-fascists from all sorts of organisations came together from civil society uh, and, and won and beat the British National Party. The biggest electoral far-right party in British history was taken down by communities and people coming together and dealing with that. Uh, and that wasn't some sort of grand cable street battle. That was thousands of people knocking on doors in communities day after day and dealing with the issues um, that people wanted to be dealt with. And so the far right is in the toilet electorate in the United Kingdom. And part of that is because the British National Party, the great white hope of electoral politics collapsed because it was beaten. Uh, and so it can be beaten when people come together from across the political spectrum uh, and stand up to these things. So I don't think there's any exceptions, but I do think that there's plenty of optimism for we've beaten them before and we will beat them again. Um. So first of all, kind of democracy is not a stable, God, stable, God-given system. I, I, we have to fight for it every day. 
So we we have democracy now and we had to fight for it and we have to fight to keep it. Uh, how to do that? But in the end, we can all start with ourselves. And I think it depends on who you are. It depends on what kind of person you are. Are you are you brave enough to take the fight at your working place, the debate at the working place, or are you the social one? Well, if you are, let's find five friends who think the same way as you are, and then you have suddenly a network of a local group. Uh, so I can't give kind of the the silver bullet. It's 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 a it's it's a it's a. It's a there is a lot of answers in the end i think i think about i think it's about self-confidence and to know and start to learn what we actually are defending because at least that's what many times i think that people who are friends of liberal democracy social democrats liberals wherever on the political scale they are so used to this system that they really don't remember why we have it. So what are the gains? I mean, why do we like this system? What is, what, what, what is it? Why, why, why are we actually in favor of it, not only defending it? Uh, and I think the, the day where you kind of get that, and when you feel that you are prepared to not only defend it, but, but to demand for politicians to even deepen our democracies democratic system and demand reforms that makes our democracy even better that's when we that's when we will win and i mean i, I understand that this is in very in very general terms but we have to have we have to know be better to know what we are defending and better to to explain why our way of living, our way of meeting each other, our way of treating each other, our way of looking at, at each other as individuals is better for us and our, for our, our community and for our society and for our future. And if we are able to do that, we will not only kind of answer their questions, be better to fight their arguments, but force them into a corner where they don't know how to face our arguments and i think we are lacking momentum at the moment and i think momentum is what we need okay then let me add uh, some uh, very fast last words um i think what uh, we talked about a little bit what what is very important is that uh, the parts of the ideology like racism or anti-semitism or islamophobia are not only in the far right scene, it's all over society. And we have to talk about these topics um, and tackle them and see where uh, inequalities exist and how to work on them. And I agree with Daniel, if I do workshops on uh, combating hate speech, for example, I always tell the, tell, um, the attenders, um, you don't have to go uh, online and uh, argue against everything you see on the big newspapers if you do it every day in your personal context with your with your friends with your families with co-workers who make sexist or racist commentaries if you uh, disagree every time that will help much more uh, than spending hours because we have to do this on an everyday uh, um, level and to do some uh, uh, to have something optimistic at the end for example 
Um, I always like the idea um, that uh, we have those far-right movements are anti-modernist movements. They are against every kind of modernity and uh, this, because they are fighting so much at the moment, this, uh, I think this also means that we have already won a lot of ground uh, fighting for equality in our societies. And this is why this backlash is so harsh and why they try to protect their traditional family values they are imagining or, uh, or uh, traditional politics, uh, which means in Germany, national socialist politics, no tradition I would link to. Um, so, but they are fighting so much because I think we won a lot uh, of uh, space uh, already and we should just go on and uh, strengthen everyone in a democratic civil society. All right, um, I see the, that we're running, we're running out of time. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Joe, Daniel and Simone for joining us. I know it's quite late in other places than the UK right now. Um, and thank you for everyone joining in. I'm sorry if we haven't been able to answer your questions. A lot of the answers to your questions is actually in the report as well. So hence, I haven't taken them up. So it's free to read. Just go into the website, Expo, Hopnahe or Amadeo and you'll find it there. Um, and yeah, and I just want to say thank you to everyone um, and um, hope you guys have a good evening. Um, and I, yeah, and I just say, want to say thank you again for everyone. Bye. Bye.